All right, we're going to go to Luke 16 as we continue talking about the words of Jesus. So Luke 16, uh, and, and this story uh, to me is a really powerful story. So um, have you ever known somebody or you've ever been the person who found out that you just completely missed the point? I don't know, maybe you were in a conversation or uh, you were trying, you know, the, the teacher gave you an assignment and you thought you did it right, but you completely missed the point. Uh, I remember one time when I was in fourth grade, uh, I, I got a paperback that I got a 25 on and I never got, I never got an F. I never failed. I got a 25 on it because the instruction said you were supposed to do this and this and this and I didn't do any of it. I thought I knew what I was supposed to do and I didn't. So the teacher gave it back and they gave it back to you with that dreaded like red line parent signature. So I crumpled it up and put it in the trash I don't know what I expected to happen, but I crumbled it up and put it in the trash and nothing ever happened. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm still waiting for a call from my fourth grade teacher. Where's that paper? Um, but like missing the point, you know, people who just, they, they, they're really, it's not that they're not working hard, but they're working wrong, you know? Uh, I remember going to uh, middle school sporting events with our kids, and I, I oftentimes, if you're a coach or, or a sports person or whatever, I mean no offense to you, but sometimes as a parent, as a spectator, I thought middle school coaches kind of missed the point, you know? I mean, really, we're not playing for the world championship here, you know? These are growing kids. They're developing kids. They got to figure out if they can play or not. Sometimes the only way they can figure that out is to get on the field. And, and I would sit there frustrated at, at coaches who would be like, you know, only my best players, the one who already know how to play, they're the ones who play and everybody else has got to sit the bench. And I'm thinking, how are they supposed to learn how to play? This is middle school. We're not, I just thought they missed the point. Maybe you're like, that's the worst idea ever. But I thought, they missed the point. Uh, I think there are other places where it would be a tragedy to miss the point. You know, I do a lot of weddings as a pastor. And the wedding, I've, you know, there's probably no day in our lives that, at least in our current culture, has more planning and preparation and maybe even more dreams and expectations loaded onto it. But what if the wedding isn't the point? What if you pulled off the perfect day but found out later that the point was marriage, not the wedding? And what if the wedding was awesome and the marriage is lousy and you missed the point? I think about a career. A career and a job, you know, it represents and reflects that that we are created by God for a purpose. We are made to have contributions, to do work that matters in this world. You know, a career, there's stuff to that. and, And you should... You know, pour yourself into that. But what if your career and, and where you are in your career, your position and, and your performance evaluations and your salary and all of that isn't the point? What if your career is a, a means to an end? It's not exactly the point. And what if you worked really hard and worked yourself to such exhaustion just to find out that success in your career is relatively empty without the people that you would be working with, for. Sometimes we sacrifice people for the sake of career and we've missed the point. Whether it's, you know, the, your coworkers get trampled, you know, or the family that you have at home that gets neglected because of career. And you, it's not bad, it's not awful, it's not wrong to, to have a career, but you've missed the point of it. 
right? And so the story we look at today is in this genre. It's in the genre of you've missed the point. I will say to you, this is probably the most sobering story Jesus ever told. I mean, it, it will shake you to your core if you listen to what he has to say. And it demands a response. It will demand a response from every single one of us, just like it demanded a response of the audience that was listening to Jesus as he sat there, stood there and spoke these words. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether this is a true story, or whether it's a made-up story, meaning whether this is a parable Jesus told to get across a point, or whether this is a literal person and literal people and and an actual historical event. But I will tell you, really, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really, because the big points are still the big points. No matter what you believe about whether this was actually you know, some, some people that literally existed or whether this was a story Jesus told to make a point, the big points are the big points. And the, the, the stuff that Jesus is trying to get across is the truth that he wants you and I to know. And so we're going to go to Luke 16, and we're going to read starting at verse 19 down to verse 21, and we're going to find out about a couple of guys who are living life on this earth. So here's what it says. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we have two people. Jesus starts out with this story about two people. Probably because we all live in this life and in this world, we can identify at different moments in our lives with one of these two people. You have, you have these very different experiences, and we do have different experiences in life. You've got one man, Jesus just calls him this wealthy man, this, this rich man, and he lives in the lap of luxury. He has everything that he could possibly want or desire. He has leisure, he has pleasure, he has wealth, he's got all of it. And then you've got this other man who literally has nothing. He's so hungry that he would eat the scraps. His health is poor, his life is miserable. Can you identify with with either or at times both of those people? When things are going well and everything seems right in the world? When things are going awful and it feels like you're the most miserable person on the earth or somewhere in between. We all have these experiences because we are human beings. And so Jesus starts the story by talking about these two different men. Rich man, dressed in purple and fine linen. Everything Jesus says about him in that sentence is meant to tell us that he is astoundingly wealthy. That he has Everything he could need. When he says purple for you and I, it's like, well, I don't know. I don't like purple that much. In the day, purple clothing was very expensive. The process to make purple was probably the most intricate process there was. And so only the very wealthy could afford purple clothes. It's why purple was the color of royalty. A king would wear purple. As a matter of fact, we just came through Easter. Sometimes you'll see a cross and it'll have a purple cloth on it. That is to represent the king who died on that cross. That's the idea. Of, that's why it's always purple, right? So purple represents royalty. And in this passage, represents overwhelming wealth. But Jesus just doesn't stop about his purple robe. He talks about fine linen. 
which is a way of talking about the tunic that everybody wore underneath their clothes. Okay, everybody, if you were just a commonplace worker, you wore a tunic. And your tunic was probably dirty from working out in the field. It was gray, it was tan, it was, it was the color of the kind of stuff that was used to make it. It was, you know, not worth keeping it really, really clean or anything because it was just going to get dirty again. But this man, his tunic was what Jesus calls fine linen. And it is something that isn't seen much, but what Jesus is saying is it's pure, bright white. And in order to get a a tunic bright white, there was a lot of work that went into it. So here's a guy who's got a purple robe, and underneath that robe, barely seen as a tunic, but he wants to make sure that that tunic is bright white, and he spent lots of money on his clothing so that everybody knows he's got money to burn. He's got everything you could possibly want. It is said to give us some sense and this audience some sense about this person's wealth. And so as they listen to it, they're like, man, that guy, he's got it made. That guy, yeah, that's the life. Then after just one sentence, Jesus switches the story and he talks about another man. And this man is named Lazarus. Everything about this man that Jesus says is given to tell us that he has nothing. He is in dire need. And on top of that, he's in poor health. I mean, as Jesus tells the story, you can see he has no resources for some of the basic necessities. Basic necessities are food, clothing, shelter. He doesn't say anything about clothing, but he tells us he doesn't have any food and he doesn't have any shelter. He lives outside the rich man's gate, so he lives exposed to the elements. And it says he's so hungry that he wishes he could just have some of the scraps, some of the leftovers, some of the, the, the crumbs from the rich man's table. On top of that, he's lying outside the gate, probably meaning, would, would, would be presumed by the people listening to the story, that he's paralyzed. That he cannot, of his own strength, get up and go from this place to that place. So his life is pretty miserable. On top of that, it tells us he's got sores that cover his body. It says not a man in good shape. He's got sores because he's malnourished, because he has you know, no, no ability to recover from sicknesses, from wounds, from health. And so he can't even defend himself. It talks about the dogs coming and licking his sores. Can't even shoo away animals. He's weak. He's decrepit. He is absolutely poor. So Jesus presents these two men. Oh, and by the way, the dogs coming and licking his sores is not just meant for a gross flourish, like uh, disgusting, although it is. It also is meant for this. Dogs were unclean animals. And so the dog coming and, and touching this man, dogs coming and touching this man, meant that he was continually, ceremonially unclean. He could not go and worship. He Obviously, he's paralyzed, but on top of that, even if he could find a way to get to the temple, he didn't have the money for the sacrifice, and they would reject him as an unclean, a ceremonially unclean person. So Jesus, has he done a good job at drawing a contrast between two people? Let me ask you the question that Jesus is asking his audience. So, who do you want to be? Which of these lives do you want? What life 
do you feel is blessed, fortunate, a recipient of God's favor? You ask yourself this question every single day. The life that you have, is it a representation of the blessing of God? Or are you miserable? Is life hard and empty? Is it something that you resent? Or is it blessed by God? Jesus says, here's these two men. One of them, the audience would have assumed, is good with God. Because why? He's got money. He's healthy. Clearly, God has blessed him. Right? Wouldn't you assume that too? And this guy over here, clearly God is mad at him. Look at him. I mean, just look at him. He can't even go and worship. God must really have it out for him. Why would God make someone suffer like that unless they were a really bad person? All of us, humanly speaking, had better get a grip on this idea, the reality that you and I normally gravitate to the rich man. We compare our lives to the rich man. And when we start to feel like we drift towards Lazarus, we're like, oh no. What happened to this life I was supposed to enjoy? Why is life so hard? Why does God hate me? Why won't God bless me? We are drawn to the life the rich man enjoys. But what we're about to find out is that he missed the whole point. And what I'm saying to you is this. When we buy in to the way that this parable invites us to think, at the beginning here, we miss the point of this life. We risk winding up at the end of our life thinking, why did I waste my life? Don't waste your life, people. Don't miss the point. We get a hint of what's coming because Jesus gives one of these two men a name. He doesn't name the rich man. He only names the, the poor man. And the poor man's name is Lazarus. And you know what Lazarus means? One whom God has helped. There's irony there, isn't there? Lazarus, the one whom God has helped. Poor, laying in his sores, paralyzed, hungry, no place to go. One whom God has helped. Is he the one whom God has helped? Why did Jesus give him that name? And I hope that before we read the rest of the story, I hope that you can admit there's something final about this. There's something that feels so real and so ultimate, like it is the last word. Rich man, poor man, healthy, unhealthy, in luxury, in misery. I hope that you get how our humanity feels like it's so solid, so sure. Like the rich man will always be powerful and have whatever he wants. And the poor man will always be sick and always be in need. The poor man will always be on the outside when it comes to God. And clearly the rich man will always be loved by God. That's what we think, isn't it? That's how we measure our lives. That's how we look at our lives. But here's Jesus' point. This is not ultimate. This is just a moment. It is very temporary. And Jesus gives another chapter, and here's where the shock value comes in. And so pick up with me at verse 22 down to verse 26. and says this. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades... Where he was in torment, 
He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. All right, so Jesus flips this story over. And it's one of the reasons people, a lot of people, I would say most commentators believe this is a parable, even though there's a person named Lazarus in it, is because, let's deal with this. If you take this completely literally, it brings up some issues for us, okay? And it brings up some issues for us that we find nowhere else in Scripture, okay? So we're going to talk about what this all means, but before we get there, I want to kind of maybe unconfuse us or whatever, There's a couple things in here, there's details in here that are meant to be a part of the story that aren't meant to teach us something about the afterlife. For example, I would say this. I think we all understand that Jesus, even though he doesn't explicitly clarify this, he's not teaching that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. Right? Does everybody get that? He's not saying, well, if you're rich, you better enjoy it now. And he's not saying if you're poor, you're guaranteed a way in. He's not teach, even though that's the way he sets it up, that's not what he's teaching. So that's not what he's trying to say is true. And there are other elements here that are probably not meant to be intended as real. For example, I, I don't believe that anywhere else in Scripture we would find people in hell interacting with people in heaven that there is this communication back and forth between them. I think that that is probably something in this story that is meant for Jesus to unpack the difference in experience and the heart of the man who finds himself in torment. So when we talk about it, and I would say probably this is a parable, and as a parable, what you, what you look for are the large points. What you look for are the main things that Jesus is trying to teach, not every single little detail. So what's Jesus trying to teach us here? Well, Let's start with the simple. This life is not all there is. This life is not all there is. Now, most people who would come to church on Sunday morning would go, yeah, I believe that. This life is not all there is. The question is not do you believe it. The question is do you live like that? This life is not all there is. Do you think like that? Do you look at your life like that? Another key point, big point, there is, after this life, an eternal destination for every person. And Jesus describes, gives a feel for both of these destinations. One place is paradise. In in this story, it is by Abraham's side. And the other place is a place of agony with fire and pain. Now, some people, there are all these different views about hell, and some people believe there is no hell, and some people believe, you know, hell is just a place of uh, some kind of misery or whatever. It's metaphorical. I could buy into that, and I certainly could move past Jesus talking about flames and agony here, except this is not the only mention of that idea. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about hell much more than he talks about heaven like seven times more than he talks about heaven. 
And if you're wondering what Jesus has to say about it, you can look throughout the Gospels at it. I would say one great place to look, Mark chapter 9 at the end of chapter, uh, verses 42 and following. Jesus keeps coming back to this, where the flame is not quenched and the worm doesn't die. Meaning the agony is eternal. And when you get to the end, when you get to Revelation and we talk about the final judgment, the, the Apostle John describes a lake of fire. And everyone who's not in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. So if we want to just say, well, this isn't really fire, this isn't really torment, this isn't really... I think you've got to do a lot of gymnastics to get around what the Bible puts in front of you. And I get that we can't live every day like thinking about the torment of those who are lost. I get that. There's a, there's a capacity for us as human beings. But listen, let's just not just put it off to the side and forget about it. There's an eternal destination for every single person. One is paradise. The other is torment and agony. And after you die, after there's judgment, your place is eternally permanent. Part of the, the picture of a great chasm between is that you can you get to one place or the other, and that's where you stay forever. And I think finally one of the big points of this is that what you experience in this life may be drastically different from what you experience after this life. And you have to ask yourself the question of which one matters to you? What defines whether you are blessed? Whether your life is good, is it this life or the next life? Well, why can't we have both? Well, I think Jesus is kind of saying here, no, you can't. You got to pick one. You can't serve both. You've got to pick one. You've got to decide what defines your life. Is it your eternal destination or your present life? What are you living for? What's the point? Don't miss the point because Jesus is saying the rich man missed the point. And now he wishes he had. So the story is Jesus telling us kind of what we already know, but maybe we don't think about often. The rich man, enjoying a great life, does what everybody does, dies. The poor man, living a miserable life, does what everybody does, dies. And they're both buried. Both of their lives on this earth come to an end, but that isn't the end. There is a life after this life. They're taken to another place after their death. And maybe they both were surprised at where they wound up. Certainly, the people in the audience listening to the story were really surprised that the rich man is in agony and the poor man is in paradise. What? Because everything, if I was looking at that poor man, everything I saw about him would have told me God hates him. There's no way he can be good with God. He can't sacrifice. He can't worship. God is not helping him, even though his name is the one whom God helps. God is not helping him. So he must be rejected by God. And clearly, this rich man, he must be loved by God because God is blessing him and pouring out good things on his life. Clearly, God loves him. And so the audience would have been stunned to see Jesus say, now listen, Lazarus goes to where Abraham is. It's called Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, meant to tell us basically this. 
that Lazarus went where Abraham is after death. Wherever Abraham is, and we're talking to a Jewish audience here, Father Abraham clearly was loved, chosen, accepted by God. So wherever he went after he died, that's the place to be, right? So by Abraham's side, this Lazarus is standing by Abraham's side. He is in the place to be. He is in that place of blessing, that place of eternal uh, you know, solitude or, or wonderfulness next to Abraham. He has the favor of God in eternity. On the other hand, we're looking at this word Hades, sometimes translated hell. It is a Greek word for the place of the dead. It wasn't very specific in the Hebrew, the same word as the word Sheol. It's just like grave or underworld. Most of the people who are standing there talking that Jesus is talking to, when they hear uh, Hades, they're thinking grave, they're thinking underworld, but they don't have a specific idea of what it is. So Jesus is saying, after he's dead, here's what his existence is like. For the rich man, the afterlife is a place of fire and torment and agony, so much so that he is just looking for one moment's relief. Just one moment's relief. Just a drop of water. And so he calls out, Father Abraham. Father Abraham. Meaning, you're my father. Why am I over here? I'm a Jew. I shouldn't be here. I should be there with you. It's my right. It's my inheritance. It's just what I am. I think a lot of people, just like this Father Abram, would label themselves Christian. I was born in America. I went to church as a child. I'm a Christian. I hope you don't miss the point of this life. Father Abraham. And Abraham says to him, listen, don't you get it? What you did in this life is what determines eternity. Will you respond to the warning that the rich man didn't respond to? He missed the point. You know, today in America, surveys show that the vast majority of people who believe in heaven believe they are going there. If there's a place after this life, a place that's good, I'm going there. Why? Because that's what we want to believe well, I'm a better person than that. And if they got in, I should get in. And I deserve it. I belong. It's what I think I should have. So I must have. And Jesus is saying, listen, have you ever thought about where you will open your eyes after you die? And here's an interesting point. The rich man still doesn't get it. In his life, he saw himself as Lazarus's better. He saw even the crumbs from his table as something that, you know, if he was going to give them to Lazarus, he was such a nice guy. He doesn't deserve it, but I'll give it to him anyway. Lazarus is beneath him. He is below him. He is meant to be my servant. I am the powerful, important one. And so here in the afterlife, guess what he wants? Lazarus to come serve him. Lazarus to leave his place and come enter into the rich man's place for the sake of the rich man's benefit. He doesn't get that he has received what his life deserved. So he wants Lazarus to come and serve him. 
In real life, Lazarus had need and he refused to help him. He saw it as his fate. But now, Lazarus, please come serve me. What I think this illustrates, and I think as you're as a believer, maybe sometimes, you know, you wonder about people who die and, and they're lost and what's going to happen to them. Here's what I think this illustrates, and I think this is, there's a lot of solid biblical foundation for this. People who don't get it in life will still continue to not get it after this life. They will continue to refuse, even though it's right in front of their face, they'll still refuse to see. So if, let's say, you're someone who doesn't choose to believe in judgment, doesn't want to believe in God, doesn't want to believe in life after death, then probably when you open your eyes in Hades, in in hell, in, in torment, you'll probably be unchanged. You'll just shift. Your, your unbelief will be expressed in a different way. Instead of thinking there's no God, you'll just be convinced that God is not worthy of worship or trust. God is unfair. You'll live in that bitterness. You'll live in that, that anger, stew in that like idea that, you know, God, why did God do this to me? And that's your eternity. Your opportunity to respond is here in this life right now. So I would encourage you to open your heart to this warning. Lots of people complain, what kind of God would send people to hell? And I get it. Do you get it? I mean, that's an awful thought. To think about people suffering for eternity in hell, that's a horrible, horrifying thought. So I get it. What kind of God would send people there? But there's an answer, and and we're going to kind of close with some of the answer to that. I would say the answer is twofold. Number one, a righteous judge. If there is no punishment for sin, then then your whole sense of justice is useless. If, if there's no punishment for sin, it doesn't matter what somebody does. It doesn't matter if someone you know, rapes a child or, or kills a, a mother with a, an unborn child. It doesn't matter because there's no justice. Nobody answers for anything. Never any punishment for sin, period, done. If that's what you believe, that's where you wind up. So there is justice, and God is a righteous judge. He doesn't do it because he revels in it and takes joy in it. He does it because it's right, because it's just. But secondly, he is also the same God who was so loath to see you go to this place of punishment that he died in your place so you don't have to. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. So Abraham says to him, remember, your life was like this. But now, life is not what it seemed like it was going to be. He says, do you get the point of life? That this life on this earth is brief. And the choices that you make here come with long-term consequences. A time is coming when you will no longer be able to make the choice. If you've been sitting on the fence about whether or not you will put your trust in Jesus, I want to just say this to you because I care about you and because I believe with all of my soul this is true you had better come to the place where you make the choice to trust Christ with your life. Because the the risk, the consequences, the price is huge. You can't afford to stay in the middle ground and just be like, well, I don't know. I like Jesus, but I don't know if I'm ready to give him my life. You can't afford. You can't play that game. Because this life is just brief, just a breath, just a short And the older you get, the more you realize life is just whipping by you. Believers, do you realize how fast life is passing by, life on this earth? 
What are you living for? We're talking about what we all believe and know is the truth. Heaven and hell. When was the last time that crossed your consciousness and drove the choices of you, that you made of where to invest your time, your words, your relational energy? Where is your effort? Where is your passion for the cause of Christ? When was the last time your heart was broken as you realized the truth of what Jesus is saying? These are Jesus' words to us today. They are words of invitation and words of warning. Every single person gets to make a choice, but that opportunity is for a limited time. And there's only one response to it. And even the rich man knows what the response is. So finish the story out with me, verse 27 down to verse 31. Here's what it says. He answered, that's the rich man. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone would, from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that's how Jesus ends the story. It is a story that ends with this invitation, with this demand for a response. And there really is only one response. And the response is this. Eternity is what matters, folks. Eternity defines whether you have a good life or a bad life. He's saying, you look at Lazarus and his misery in this life, and then you look at where he goes for eternity. Is that the life you want? Or would you want the life of the rich man who enjoys all the blessings of this world and then suffers forever? Which life do you really want? Eternity is what matters. We need to start living like that's the truth. Maybe you're here today and you don't know where you'll spend eternity. Eternity is what matters. You you would be so much better off to blow it on every single decision in this life except for that one than to make every other decision right and live just a wonderful good life and miss that decision because that's the point. There is no amount of good living, there is no amount of riches, there is no amount of achievement and accomplishment in this life that makes it worth it to live in torment forever. And there is no amount of misery in this life that makes it unworth it to live in paradise forever. So if Jesus says to you, listen, I've given you a cross for you to carry. There is hardship, there is misery, there is suffering in this life. Take up your cross and follow me. Will you? Or will you say, nah, that's not a God I want to follow? What you've just done is cut off the whole point of this life, which is eternity. This is a launching pad for eternity. And when we let go of that truth, we let go of everything that makes life matter. We live like a lost person. We live like this life is everything, like this life is big, like this life is meaningful, even while it's slipping through our fingers. We live blind. We live lost. We live in the dark. There's only one response, and and he says, don't let anybody else come here. Please don't let anyone else come here. But Abraham says, no. I'm not going to send Lazarus back, even though maybe he didn't even have the authority to. But the idea is, no, Lazarus doesn't need to go back. 
Because they already have Moses and the prophets. Now, if you're not familiar with the term Moses and the prophets, here's what that means. When, when the books that were written that are in our Bible today were written, the ones that were written before Jesus, the Jews called Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets. So the first five books of the Bible, Moses, that's the law. They followed the law. And then the prophets, Jeremiah, Daniel, all these guys. And they kind of summarized from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament by saying the law and the prophets or Moses and the prophets. And so Abraham says to him, they have the law and the prophets. They, have the, they know the way. They know they need to trust God. They know they need to give their lives to God. They know they, what kind of people they need to be. They know what kind of life they need to live. They know what kind of choices they need to make. Moses and the prophets. What that says is, you have enough right now to believe. You don't need any miracle. You don't need any sign. You don't need any more than you've already been given. You have enough right now to believe. And I would say this to you believers as well. You have enough right now to believe. Maybe you've already made the choice about where you'll spend eternity. Great. But you're struggling about whether God is trustworthy for your life. You already have enough information to know that he is. You just need to make the choice. The word of God has told you enough. You've already experienced enough of his goodness to know you can trust him. Second thing, those who choose not to believe can and will do so in the face of unbelievably obvious information. Sometimes if you're witness somebody, you're like, how thick can you be? It's so obvious, how can you not see it? It's because they don't want to see it. Maybe you're like really frustrated by that. Don't be. People make a choice about whether they will see or not. Jesus puts these words in Abraham's mouth to remind us that people won't believe even if someone they knew rose again and warned them about what is coming. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did? And not everybody believed. Some of the audience that he's talking to right here, he's saying to them, even when someone rises from the dead, and warns you about what's coming, you will still refuse to believe. And you say, how is that possible? Unbelief. It's a choice. What I'm saying to you is don't make that choice. And so we're going to turn our attention to communion in just a second, but let me ask you before we do that. Have you settled the matter of your eternal destiny? Have you made a choice about giving your life to Christ or not? Have you recognized the truth that there's a judgment after this life and that that will determine what place you wind up in? Are you ready to stand before your creator? I hope that you are. And if you're not, I want to help you be. And we're going to talk about that as we do communion. Maybe today what God is challenging you with is this. Maybe you're a believer and you're sitting here today and you just, life has felt bitter and hard. Could it be that God is challenging you just like Jesus with this story about the idea that being on top of the world or having life go the way you think it should be is a good place to be, is what defines a good life? Maybe the deepest question I could ask you before we do communion is this. What are you doing on a regular basis in reaction to the truth of this story? How does heaven and hell, eternal destiny, affect your life day by day, minute by minute?